G'day, humans. Well, I've learned a lot in the past couple of weeks about the limits of having uncomfortable conversations. And the uh, not everyone's crazy about having uncomfortable conversations. They're much more in favor of demonizing people who they don't like. So the episode before last, before the Pride episode, which was the last one, was a taping of my live event with Peter Singer at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. And we promoted it on social media using the sort of sexiest, most clickbaity, most uh, controversial part of that evening, which was Peter Singer talking about his most controversial opinion. Now, Singer is pretty indisputably the world's most influential moral philosopher, has had a massive impact on the world and in encouraging people to be more generous and more expansive in their conception, in their empathic imagination, basically. Uh, he, he coined the term animal liberation when he wrote that book in the 1970s. He's had an enormous impact on animal welfare, an enormous impact on people's generosity towards uh, poor people in poor countries, and an enormous impact on the effective altruism movement, which takes a sort of a clinical and scientific approach to the amount of good that each dollar of spending on charity can do. Tremendously influential individual. But one of his opinions is very edgy. And he was telling me in the interview, which if you listen to the whole thing, you would understand, but many of these critics don't. And if you read his literature, then you would understand, but many of these critics don't. He was telling me that in the 70s and 80s, this opinion of his, which has to do with euthanasia, was getting him death threats and deplatformed and making him very controversial and the target of a lot of hate uh, from the religious right, who felt that he was breaching the sanctity of life ethic. And then things died down and everyone sort of, you know, gave up that fight feeling, I suppose, that he had made his point and they had made their point and there was nowhere further to take it. But he said that in the past five or 10 years, it started up again, the death threats, the hate, the deplatforming, the, yeah, the, the pillorying of him. And it's not coming from the religious right, but now from the left. It's coming from people who regard his words as violence and who say that because he's making philosophical arguments, he has the blood of he has the blood of innocent people on his hands. Have a listen to what we tweeted out. It's just a very, very short 30-second excerpt of the conversation. Here's what he said. I think that if the child is not on a respirator and is not suffering from some other medical condition that needs medical intervention, but the child's prospects are so bad then, as with voluntary assisted dying, there should be non-voluntary assisted dying. It's not involuntary assisted dying because that suggests it would be against the will of the child and the child isn't capable of having a will. So I refer to it as, as non-voluntary euthanasia or non-voluntary assisted dying. Now, I, I confess that sounds potentially pretty bad, the idea of killing children. But if you're pro-choice then you do believe, on some level, in killing very, very small members of the species Homo sapiens. And if you think that you should be able to abort fetuses all the way up to fairly close to birth, if you regard birth as being the sort of morally salient point at which it has to become unacceptable to, to take a life, then you would have to recognise that there's something a bit arbitrary about that, that you know, you could have a baby out of the womb at eight months that is going to survive and it would be illegal to harm that baby 
but you can have a baby in the womb at eight and a half months and you would think that it's okay, even though that organism, that individual is more developed to terminate that individual's life. So regardless of your whether you're pro-choice or, or pro-life, I think everyone agrees that there is some sort of messiness at the edges and, and moral complexity here. Singer's point is you can conceive of a life that is not worth living. You can conceive of rare cases in which an infant is born with a catastrophically debilitating condition that puts it in excruciating pain and is essentially a terminal illness. So you know that this child is going to live nine months or maybe three or four years at best, and that entire time is going to be in agony, is going to be in and out of hospital. And you can put yourself in the shoes of that sentient human, and you can ask yourself whether that's a life worth living. There are also cases where you might have a child who has only a brainstem and no brain. There's no consciousness. There's no sentience going on. All you have is, I mean, the lights just aren't on. You, you have a, a clump of flesh, essentially, that has no experiences at all. In cases like that, do we believe that it is moral to do everything that we can and pour all the resources that we can into sustaining the life of this thing? And Singer's point would be, if so, then why are we so cavalier about the way that we treat other sentient creatures, like, say, pigs, essentially torturing them however we can in order to reduce the price of a pound of their flesh to the lowest possible price in the supermarket, uh, that's a kind of a bigotry. That's what Singer would call speciesism. Anyway, these are all, I believe, legitimate things for a moral philosopher to think about. I mean, how else do you come to conclusions about what's right and wrong other than by playing around at the very edges of our intuition? And of course, it's easy to say it's a horrendous thing to take a human life. But you need moral philosophers asking the question, well, when is it okay and when is it not okay? If the human life was either completely non-sentient and doomed from the start or in total agony, is it ever conceivable that there would be a life not worth living from the, percep- from the perspective of the person who's doing the living of it? And in such a case, could it be the most humane thing to do, to take that life? But now, of course, people don't want to have that conversation. What they want to do is straw man singer, and by implication, by the transitive properties of conversation, implicate me in some vast, moral, morally reprehensible eugenics movement. So, you know, perhaps it was foolish to pick that clip to promote the episode with, but the backlash was extraordinary. What the actual fuck, one person wrote, you need to retract this conversation and you should both make a public apology. Shame on you. More like the immoral philosopher, not moral philosopher, poor form. A day later, so no apology or even a response for your blatant advocating of eugenics? Another person writes, this is absolutely disgusting. Another person says, why would you use this clip advocating murder to promote a show? Egregious. By the way, I ardently support voluntary assisted dying and I like some of Singer's ideas, but using as clickbait two able-bodied people discussing murdering someone not able-bodied is, well, there are no words. Yeah. This brings me to another thing about, like, who has standing to have conversations. Like, the fact that we're two able-bodied people means that we can't have any conversations about the abstract moral philosophy 
of edge cases. I mean, so the only people who are allowed to make morally philosophical arguments about brain-dead uh, newborns are brain-dead newborns themselves. They have to be having the conversation. It's not going to go well. They don't have brains. So, you know, someone has to have standing who is not a member of the narrow community that we're talking about here. I responded to that person, who I respect, by the way, in my defense, saying, I posted it because he's electrifyingly original and hugely compassionate towards sentient people of every different ability. Almost nobody agrees with him on euthanasia, but the world would be duller without renegades pushing the boundaries of conversation. And the person responded and said, Fair enough, I'm not advocating the shutting down of conversations. The critique is about choosing this clip as the promo. One doesn't have, mu- have to have much imagination to see how painful, even devastating, it can be to hear this. To which I simply said, I do confess that there is an expectation that if people find themselves offended by a contentious clip, they actually listen to the whole thing in context before reflexively declaring that a moral philosopher has no standing to discuss moral issues that don't directly affect him. And it was just disheartening. Especially because I tried to invite the most strident critic on the show to be heard. Amid all the other reactions on Twitter and Instagram, amid the reactions like someone asking, is there a transcript of the podcast? And another person saying, probably not. Why make a podcast accessible to people he wants dead? Implying that Peter Singer wants to kill deaf people. Amid all of that, amid the, the posts on Instagram saying this is disgusting, ableist eugenics and absolutely disgusting, you said disgusting twice. Amid the messages saying, so essentially Peter Singer is advocating in a slightly pro-eugenic sounding way for the murder of disabled children. Easily one of the most offensive, horrific things I've ever heard. Another person saying grotesque. Amid all of that, one person who I also admire posted, I just hope you'll be giving as much airtime to disabled people who are living, and this is a disabled individual we're talking about, as you're giving to Peter Singer, who wants disabled people dead. And I said, I'd love to discuss this with you on a future show. And I tagged her. Would you send my producer your best contact info? And I left the email address, if you are willing. Here's what she said. No, thank you. My first impression of you was because you've created an unsafe space for disabled people, facilitating a conversation that says we should be dead. Maybe there'll be someone else more willing to chat, but it's not me. To which I said, nobody has said anything like what you're claiming. I wouldn't allow anyone I was speaking with to do so. I'm disappointed that you're uninterested in conversation, which is all we've got really to understand each other's concerns. All the best to you anyway. And someone else parachuted in and said, I think she's made her concerns clear, no? What is it that you don't understand? Well, where do we even begin? What I don't understand is why you wouldn't want to talk about it. What I don't understand is why you would assume the worst, why, why you would assume for a start that someone who is arguably the most respected philosopher in the entire world would be saying that you, he thinks you should be assassinated or executed. Um, why you wouldn't see that that's probably a straw man, why you wouldn't want to flesh out what's actually going on. I don't understand the intellectual incuriosity of people, I suppose. I, I totally, totally, totally get how shitty it must be to have to 
endure all of the ableist bullshit that people throw at you, that assholes throw at you. And I completely appreciate that I speak from a place of privilege that I don't have to live with that. But after all that throat clearing is done with, can't we also address the separate question of whether or not the world's greatest moral philosopher is a member of the gang of ableist vomit spewers and tweet haters? Or whether he might have some kind of a point. And if he doesn't have a point, the only way that you're going to convince people of it is surely by making the argument, not by saying that he wants all deaf people to be executed. I mean, you can't be serious. Anyway, this is not my fight. What was alarming to me was the refusal to converse. I mean, here is a group of very highly respected supposedly intellectual people who hear 30 seconds and jump to the conclusion that they know so much from that 30 seconds that there is nothing more they need to know. There is, there is nothing that could be redeemable about a person's entire life body of work. Or maybe they're just afraid. I don't know. Maybe they think I'm going to go in and attack them, which I absolutely wouldn't if you know this podcast and you know me. I would try to understand their point of view. So we considered talking to, you know, Australia's disability commissioner or something. But the, the problem is that the vast majority of people, <laughs> the vast majority of people living with different abilities would regard it as being acceptable for people, for a moral philosopher to think through the moral edge cases of humankind. So, you know, I'm not going to get very far if the first, if I say, you know, was this completely unacceptable? And they say, well, it could be misconstrued, it could be misunderstood, it could be considered offensive, but no, it's fine for him to say and it's fine for you to hold the interview. I really want to talk to people who think I should lose my job. I really want to talk to those people because until we can converse with those people, I don't think we're going to get out of the hole we're in. So, yes, this is uh, just an eye-opening experience. A reminder once again for the importance of, if not having, at least inviting people to have conversations that are difficult and stimulating and uncomfortable. Today on the show, woke capitalism, the role that companies play in stoking our wokeness, in fighting for social justice and corroding and eroding the public square in the process. That at least is according to our, our guest, Carl Rhodes. He's the, the Dean of the Business School at the University of Technology, Sydney. Full disclosure, I'm a visiting fellow there, but in a different department, social, uh, social sciences and humanities. Carl writes uh, a lot about the ethical and democratic dimensions of business and work. His book is Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. And he's not a conventional uh, right-wing ragbag who just thinks that wokeness is an unmitigated evil. As you will hear, he's broadly on the left, but he believes in traditional left-wing ideas and indeed pushes back on my concerns about wokeness with... Uh, with the mindset of a smaller liberal and a, and a capitalist and someone who believes in social and economic justice. He's a really interesting guy. He's appeared in a bazillion places like the Sydney Writers Festival and he tours and gives professional conferences. He previously had very senior management positions in big companies like Lendlease and AGL and Citibank and Boston 
consulting and so on. So he has his chops, he has his cred in the business world, and now he's really inviting us to lift our eyes and think differently about how business could operate and certainly thinks that it's a dead end for businesses to cynically manipulate wokeness in uh, in an effort to chase uh, profits. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with the one and only Professor Carl Rhodes. was the pandemic for you well i mean i guess different in different ways i mean everything you know it was it wasn't too bad you know we're a family of three in my house and we um found out that we get on reasonably well together I <laughs> think. the alternative have yeah exactly i mean i know there are you know there are covid divorces and various yeah. things around yeah one of my um, best friends actually got a covid divorce and it's one of those tricky things where you can't really say to the person, but you're undergoing so many stresses at the moment. They'd just had a baby and yeah. they were living in Los Angeles. And so the lo- it was much more chaotic and in some ways more scary over there. And yeah, all the yeah. pressure just did them in. And you're making a permanent decision yeah. on the basis of what is in fact a temporary set of circumstances, but doesn't feel that way at the time. Although it didn't, I mean, I think the first time round, it didn't really feel temporary because we had no idea there was no word of vaccines or we really didn't know what was going to happen. It was For me, it felt kind of like time became different. You know what I mean? The time mm. horizon of your life became different and you couldn't kind of think of the future in the same way. I think by the by the last year, you know, the vaccine was coming and we had this kind of target and every day you'd see Gladys on TV here in New South Wales. <laughs> That's the premier of our state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, telling you what percentage we were at and once we got to 80, certain things. So it was almost like there was a goal we were getting yeah. to. So I think the second one had that sense of the future where the yeah. first one was like, we just didn't know what the hell was going on. Do you remember on. what you thought was going to happen at the beginning of the beginning? The beginning of the beginning, I thought that it would... Um, at the very beginning, I, I don't think we actually knew how bad it was. I think we all kind of thought it was a bit of a bad flu that was super infectious and it would just no, get over with it. I, I thought about that, but obviously I was wrong. Um, uh, and after that, no, I think it was just kind of living uh, living day to day. Uh, it's funny. I was going back to back through some of my WhatsApp messages with a friend in Europe about it. At the as I was, I was just scrolling back and looking at our our communications in March of 2020, and I somehow thought that it was. I, I thought it was going to be very bad from early on because I knew enough uh, enough data wonks to be sounding the alarm in mm. in February. So I felt like I was chicken little screaming from the rooftops <laughs> <laughs> while everybody else was still going about their lives. But once it, once everyone got on the train, uh, you know, end of March, where everyone was sort of on board yeah. and there was panic buying and all that sort of stuff, I noticed in my text message threads to him, I seemed to be under the impression that it was going to get very bad for a few months and mm. then go away completely somehow. Yeah. Right? I thought that pandemics would rip through the population, might kill, you know, 5 or 10% of the most vulnerable people. Yeah. And then we'd all just go back to normal life in June of 2020. Yeah. And I, it's so bizarre to me now why I would have thought that. But of course, you know, not everyone gets it. And so you have to continue to try to prevent people from getting it 
forever. Yeah, I haven't had it, um, fortunately. How? You're I the guy. You're well, the one guy. But especially recently, you know, with my job, I mix with a lot of people. I go to dinners. I go to graduations at university where there's people from everywhere in completely non-socially distanced ways. So mm. I really should have. So I don't know uh, why. Um, uh, oh, it could I'll, be tomorrow. I'll, I'll try to carry it on to you somehow. I'll try to, I'll try to cough as much as possible. Uh, there, or maybe you're just one of those people. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are, who are just naturally, you know, semi-immune, who just don't seem to get it. Or else easily. maybe I've just been lucky. Yeah. I know yeah. right. I've had all the va- I had all the vaccinations as yeah. soon as I as I could. So I you know I took all the precautions uh in that sense but yeah I've just uh... I had all the vaccinations and then I, I and I went to the most dangerous parts of the world to Europe when Omicron was exploding mm. in December of 2021 and yeah. to the states and you know waiting in line at security at Austin Airport and LaGuardia and places like that, yeah. which would be absolute cesspools, and I didn't get it. And then I came back here, and after I'd been back in Sydney for three or four weeks, when Omicron was exploding, I got it in February. Oh, you got hit. Yeah. Anyway, um, why why did you want to write about woke capitalism? What's woke capitalism? Well, woke capitalism's a, a phenomenon that's kind of started around the Trump era, really late uh, 2010s. Um, I mean, it has a history before that, but the term emerged then where we see big corporations, uh, their CEOs, and then sometimes uh, wealthy people, billionaires, uh, usually attached to business, supporting political causes that you would have previously or normally associated with the progressive left, Um, anti-racism and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the Me Too movement, climate change is, uh, is in there, support for sexual diversity, you know, L- LGBTQ. Oh, don't get it wrong. They'll come after you, Carl. <laughs> yeah, pronouns. The LGBTQI plus, yeah. yeah. Do you have a pronoun in your, in your bio at university? No, I don't use a pronoun in my bio. Is, that's not mandatory? The university doesn't impose it? No, the Yet. university doesn't impose any of that kind of stuff. I'm Is waiting. It, I'm it, waiting for the ABC to tap me on the shoulder and say, "Excuse me, you don't have a pronoun in your body." Well, it's interesting. A lot of the people who um, are critics of woke capitalism blame universities and say that universities are somehow these kind of hotbeds of you know crazy lefty, uh, loony left kinds of thinking bringing all of this in, I think that these people don't spend a lot of time in universities. <laughs> well, maybe not in the business schools, no, but in the social studies departments they might. Yeah, maybe right. in some cases in social sciences and humanities, but that's usually a fairly small part of a university. It's certainly not incubating in the engineering faculty. Mm. Um, or business schools uh, also get accused, however, um, because especially with woke capitalism, businesses are increasingly putting their resources behind this, uh, mm. the, these kind of things. So coming back to your question, so I saw this phenomena kind of happening, and I saw most of the people who criticize woke capitalism, it's a conservative critique. It's a critique that says businesses should just be making profit and shouldn't be messing around with all this woke stuff. And in a sense, they don't like it because they disagree with the type of social causes that are associated with it. In a sense, they're more critical of the woke than they are of the capitalism. Right. I come at it from a different perspective, and my personal politics are progressive. And so the the type of causes that I was just mentioning are things that I would generally support, I mean, as a kind of blanket statement. But I'm still not happy with woke capitalism, still not happy with private interests having such a big influence on what are really 
public matters. And so there's a kind of break, you know, within, we live in a society that's a kind of, you know, a, a tense relationship in a sense between liberal democracy and market capitalism. But the history is that try and keep those things separate, to try and treat the private interests and the public interests separate. And woke capitalism is kind of breaking that system where where uh, private interests, the interests of wealthy people and people and corporations, are coming to have an undue influence on the public. But and that's a problem for democracy. But haven't market pressures always bled into the, the liberal democratic square in the sense that an oil company will try, you know, motivated by its own financial interests to poo-poo uh, climate science uh, and to advocate for more drilling? And that, vends up, that then ends up le- leading to a contamination of the public discourse about climate Science, uh, even if it's not motivated to do so, what difference does it make whether or not the corporation is motivated by, uh, for ideological reasons or for market reasons, if the end effect is the same? Well, I think in both cases, the primary motivation is market reasons, but they're being masked as ideological reasons in some in some cases. So you don't see corporations backing causes where they, they end up losing loads of money. And and often, you know, you look at Gillette, if you remember, they had that uh, the best a man can be ad, you know, in support of Me Too. There was a whole lot of market research and stuff they did before going out with that. They And it created a little bit of a controversy, but there was no real financial risk. If anything, they would have been expecting a financial gain. So I don't think, I mean, so mm. I think it's a, it, it, it is similar to, to other things or even similar to, you know, direct lobbying of corporations to reduce, you know, regulations or to see things go in their own way. But it's different in this sense in that it's really, it's really, it's a kind of mutation of those those other things because it's more directly trying to appeal to people's social conscious and, and social views. So it's not so much that it's different, it's just different in principle. I mean, it's just a different manifestation of doing the right. kind of thing that's been around for a I while. I mean, just to, cor- just to corroborate your note about the insincerity of companies that try to do this, I saw a, a side-by-side screenshot of the uh, the social media profiles of companies during Pride Month on uh, on LGBTQI plus matters. And, uh, you know, everyone's got the rainbow flag on the North American and uh, Western European and Australian versions of their, uh, their, their sites. And you go to the Saudi version of their website or the Iranian version of their website if they're lucky enough to to exist in Iran and of course not a not a peep I mean what would actually be courageous and and woke would be to stand up for queer rights in Saudi Arabia not in North America where it's already a done deal yeah, and even here, when you know uh, Alan Joyce and Qantas were supporting the marriage equality um, debate uh, a few years back. He's the head of Qantas. Yeah, yeah he's the head of Qantas yeah. uh, um, and also uh, a gay man. Um, uh, in a sense, he amplified the cause, but it had pretty much been decided in the public opinion. You know, they just came in and kind of, you know, rode the winning horse. Well, then um, what does it matter if it's just bandwagon hopping? That's not really going to change much. Um, I guess it's kind of not going to change much if, it, if that's the case. And to some extent, in many cases, corporations are adopting these things because their customers think they will. But I think the diff- the problem that I see with it is is not so much that these people are maybe doing some slight amplification of these issues, but the kind of issues that these corporations support are generally social or environmental, 
climate change, uh, as I said, you know, same-sex marriage, um, uh, gay rights, uh, LGBTQI plus There rights. you go. He nailed it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he was holding up a Oops, sign. I can't no. say no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've got a little yellow card. Uh, I can't say, ladies and gentlemen, either, because uh, no, that's offensive to us trans people. So um, uh, people and people, people, yeah, people but, and gentle people. So these kind of things. But what it tends to do is it also distracts away from addressing more core economic issues. So you don't see any woke corporations saying we've got a scourge of excessive CEO pay with CEOs earning, you know, increasing multiples of the average wage, and that's driving inequality. You don't, you know, when you have the debate about should minimum wages increases, there's no kind of soapbox standing CEOs agreeing with that or universal basic income or economic equality, inequality more generally, and how that tends to be stratified across racial and gendered lines. So, I think one of the problems with woke capitalism, it pushes all this debate onto these kind of social issues, but leaves the the more traditional left or progressive issues related to inequality and exploitation um, don't, you know, aren't, get less public airing. So there's a, it's a kind of controlling the political agenda in a way that I think is... is is a problem for for democratic uh, debate, right? And and I guess then it ends up putting its thumb on the scale of the internal factional debate on the left between should we be concerned with identity rights or should mm. we be concerned with economic justice issues? Yeah. And of late, the former has definitely been winning over the latter, and many argue that that's one reason why the left keeps losing elections to the extent that it does, yeah. notwithstanding a recent Australian national election. But yeah. certainly in the United States, there's one analysis that says, you know, if you're not talking to working-class people about how you can make their lives better, but you're constantly talking to educated university elites about what pronouns to use, you're not going to mm. win enough votes to win elections. Yeah, but but also to the extent that the issues of sexual identity in this case are also related to inequalities because people from minority groups tend to be discriminated against more. So it's also about the idea of divorcing the economic from the social is a problem as well. But then you get, I don't know if you saw, you know, not long after the uh, end of the election here as a kind of, you know, conservative hand-wringing started uh, and then Peter Dutton was um, was named as the head of the Liberals, he declared that the Liberal Party is the party of the working class and uh, the party of the, you know, just similar, the forgotten Australians that that Morrison used to talk about. Mm. And, I'm thinking- and just to clarify for, 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 foreign, uh, for non-Australian list- listeners, after the election, uh, one, someone from the right wing of the right wing party, has Peter Dutton, has now uh, ascended to the leadership. And when we say liberal, we're talking about conservatives, the, ca- the, the capital L liberal party here, saying that the conservatives are the party of the working class. It's a, yeah, it's a fascinating shift. After spending a whole lot of time bringing in a regressive tax policy that made, gave massive tax cuts to wealthy people with not much going on for everyone else. So, I mean, I mean, this is Orwellian. Right. Know? And running an election campaign in which trans athletes featured prominently, a sort of a, a, a rather imported North American issue that Australians yeah. don't really give a toss about one way or another generally, but yeah. in the hopes of sw- of swaying some uh, some working class voters who might want to fight the culture war rather than focus on the way that they're being screwed by the economy. 
Yeah, so it's in a sense, it, it it smells a lot like what some people call dead cat politics, where you get the dead cat and throw it on the table and no one can talk about anything else, distracts from the real issues um, that need to be addressed, which I think are issues of... I mean, economic inequality, there's good signs uh, from the new progressive Albanese Labour government in the sense that at least issues of wage equality and housing affordability have been kind of brought to the fore in that sense. But there's still a lot to go. And I think we've had so many years of of this politics which has... um, um, not address these issues. They're not so much in people's consciousness anymore, and, and to my view, they should be. So, are conservatives pulling off a kind of a bait and switch? This is a, this is Thomas. This I was first alerted to this by Thomas Frank's book, "What's the Matter with Kansas?" I don't know if you remember that from what the late nineties or early two thousands. He wrote a great book saying that, that basically what conservatives do is deliver a windfall for the rich and screw over the poor and then get the poor to vote for them by ginning up cultural issues that they actually never deliver on, but they keep using as a boogeyman to win the next election, whether that's, you know, gays or trans or migrants Mm. or race or whatever it might be, people coming to steal your jobs or to pervert your children in the schools, and they bang the drum on that and get people to vote for them, vote essentially against their economic interests using culture war issues, and then they do a bait and switch and you never actually get the cultural stuff well i suppose sometimes you do like like delivering supreme court justices in the united states who might overturn uh, roe versus wade but you rarely get the cultural war stuff and what you reliably get is getting screwed over by the wealthy yeah i mean i haven't read that book but that makes sense although i think there's a slight difference here the term woke capitalism was capitalism was actually uh, coined by a guy called ross Duthat in an article in the new york times um, he's a conservative commentator He made the very interesting observation. He said, look, when Trump was president of the United States and was, you know, giving these windfall tax cuts to corporations, the corporations aren't going to say no, right? They thought that was great for them. And they wanted to accept that. But in accepting it, they didn't want to be associated with the populist, regressive, you know, somewhat brutish um, uh, social views that Trump had. So woke capitalism emerged as a way of kind of of cleaning up the image of the corporation so that they could be seen as being good on these social issues, while at the same time reaping massive economic benefit from corporate tax cuts care of Donald. So would you not object to woke capitalism if it was redefined, if wokeness was redefined in this context as economic justice? I think I would still oppose it to the extent that that the idea that corporations and wealthy people have a say in controlling the political agenda, whether I agree with that agenda or not personally is kind of not really the issue. I think we, we but have we've to... already established but that they will do that for their economic for economic reasons, right? So I yeah. mean take ideology out of it. They're always going to be lobbying. I mean the the drug industry is always going to be lobbying for, you know, against laws that could constrain drug prices and make healthcare more affordable for people. Uh, yeah. the, the, the military industrial complex is always going to be lobbying for more money for defense. Uh, oil companies are always going to be lobbying for a failure to act on climate change. So isn't it inevitable that you're going to get uh, economic meddling in the national conversation about policy? It is always inevitable, but I think at the same time, I think what's happened here is that woke capitalism isn't just about 
corporations doing stuff. It's also about how we understand the role of government. I mean, and one argument that woke capitalism is not just, it's not about the successes that corporations have had in, in manipulating things in their own interests. It actually results in a failure of government, particularly if you look over the period of of the last 40 years, you know, the, what they call neoliberalism. I think of myself, by the way, as belonging to Generation N. Um, What's that? I, I was born in 1967. I went to university in 1984, which was the time where Ronald Reagan was uh, president of the United States. Mar- Margaret Thatcher was prime minister in the United Kingdom, where I lived at, at the time. My whole adult life has been the neoliberal era. And I, I remember some stuff when I was a kid, which is kind of before this happens. Um, but I think this whole period since then, there's been such an, an increased reliance on the market as the solution to everything, you know, such an increased uh, belief that the corporation is the the the, uh, the 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 business type of business that we need to work. You know, the, the public listed corporations, all of the, you know, um, yeah, the privatization of state corporations, the demutualization of of uh, of mutuals, and and moving towards this corporate sense. And this actually, and which mixed with globalization, massive deregulation of markets, and the, the kind of belief in small government, which really means small influence more than small size. So I think this this withdrawal of government from the public sphere created a vacuum which corporations have been left to fill. So I think the you know while corporations may always try and influence things in in, in their own benefit, that doesn't mean society has to let them because corporations. Are exist in law, right? They exist because they're they're created as a kind of corporate person through the legal system, of which is still controlled by by sovereign states. So, uh, corporations are subservient to society, but society, at least as represented by government in in Western liberal democracies, has kind of let go, and this vacuum of power they've left has been filled. So, I don't think. It's inevitable um, that we're not able to reverse that with a new political imagination. Right. You just said that small government means small government influence, not small government size. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you look, I mean, the idea of small government um, and that government should uh, not be involved so much in interfering with the economy um, in particular, but also with society more generally, that doesn't necessarily mean that governments are actually smaller. It just means they're kind of doing less. And so government still exists and government spending still exists. And it, But it tends to be, you know, and things, uh, you mentioned the military industrial complex, but it's more the military government complex um, and less directly in, involved in industry with the absence of public industry. But governments still exist. They, we still build roads, there's still hospitals, there's still schools, and there are still these kind of uh, public services. But the withdrawal is more of a, of a withdrawal from the economy, where at, a, at an extreme, the government only comes in to solve market failures when things get really bad, like the global financial crisis being a kind of significant example of that. So government is still there, but it's... Um, it's given so much up to the private sector and even governments themselves and and public institutions, even universities like where I work, you know, became increasingly cajoled to adopt corporate management style management, dare I say, media, public yeah. media companies yeah. have yeah. been succumbed to the same to the same thing. So it's a, that's a different kind of shift, which is which is the encroachment of the private sector into the public because the public sector 
created that hole to be filled. Right. I mean, so the, I mean, the criticism of the the Thatcherites and the Reaganites. Uh, I mean, the criticism that they made, not the criticism of them in the eighties, was that the public sector had become bloated and inefficient. It was full of carding and wearing, pale white middle, middle management people who were shuffling papers around on desks mm. and couldn't find their ass with both hands. Um, now we've gone a long way in the other direction. I was just doing a, a segment recently about the New South Wales government, which is the state that we live in and that we're broadcasting from, the most populated Australian state, um, has a, a thicket of motorways that are all uh, owned and built by private companies and we all pay exorbitant tolls to drive on these uh, these these motorways. And uh, recently the Premier announced that you'll get up to $750 cash back on your tolls if you spend more than a certain amount on your tolls if you're driving in Sydney. So I did a radio segment saying, well, it's all very nice, but we pay taxes and registration so that roads can be built and the government builds those roads and then outsources to the private sector other roads that we then pay a toll for <laughs> and now the government gives us back a portion of the tolls that we paid in addition to the registration and the tax. Wouldn't it be simpler if the government just built all the roads? I mean, mm. what's impeding... And I spoke to the roads minister a- about this and... She said, oh, well, <clears throat> you know, the private sector brings in large influxes of capital and cash that the government doesn't have. And I said, hang on, hang on. The government has a triple A credit rating. Everyone in the world trusts that the New South Wales government is good on its word. Mm. You would easily be able to raise as much money as you want to at extremely competitive interest rates and build whatever you want. Why don't you just do it? Well, the private sector is better at blah, blah, blah. And there's really this mantra that the private sector is the right place to be building the road infrastructure of a big global city like Sydney. Um, do you think that it's not? And if not, how much would you have the private sector do? I mean, in these kind of things, you'd always have some kind of relationship in terms of who does the work. But yeah, the toll system does seem like double paying and the roads are essentially a public good in the sense that, you know, everyone, in the sense at least that everyone uh, benefits from them. And traditionally, the idea in terms of the public good that no one would build them if they had to pay for it themselves. I mean, that compromise is being broken in terms of toll roads. But the idea that it's more efficient, I think there was that issue in the 80s. And that was certainly the the, the case. And in the 70s, you had the kind of stagflation economies and, and, and influx of competition from uh, internationally from Japan, in particular, for example, in the auto industry. But then I don't if you've been to the U- have you been to the UK recently mm, and yeah, driven was... on a been on a train? Yes, it costs a hell of a lot to yeah. travel. Oh, on a the train. subway in London is extraordinary. Yeah. The tube, yeah, um, or even the national trains. You know, go right. from London to Manchester. It costs you hundreds of pounds. Yeah, to go on a on a, a network that hasn't been invested in by its its private owners. So I don't see. I mean, that's an example of something that's not an improvement. But even again, you know, we're here in in the two thousand and twenties. I mean, that what Reagan and Thatcher were doing in the 1980s was responding to a set of problems in the 1970s, actually using an ideology, at least in the UK, that was developed in the 1940s by Friedrich Hayek in his book, uh, The Road to Serfdom. In what way is that relevant to 2022 (laughs) Australia? Not much, in my view. But, But the ideology hasn't predominantly changed, particularly in in the conservative side of politics. So I think I don't have all the answers, but 
we just need a new political imagination to deal with the the problems that we're mm. facing now, not a 1940s ideology that was used to address 1970s problems. This indeed is another thing that Ross Douthat says. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Ross, the, New York, the conservative New York Times columnist, which is that conservatives are always reaching for the same toolkit. Uh, yeah. And really, since the 80s, haven't come up with any new ideas about anything. Yeah. They're just reaching back to the same toolkit that is getting increasingly outdated and increasingly stale, but because their hero, Reagan, or their hero, Thatcher, loved it, uh, they're going back yeah. to the same old story. And they still do. Do you remember, was it last year sometime, uh, Joss Frydenberg uh, came out and specifically uh, referred to Margaret Thatcher as being a person who he looked to for inspiration with current policies. I mean, really, I mean, it's it's way out of date and and it's time for a new generation of people and but and i'm hopeful that there is you know um there is a new generation of people with a different view many of them are the people who are kind of you know into woke corporations are quite happy to buy from organizations of a particular type or want to work for organizations for a particular type but i think the maturation of that that generation hopefully will lead to a new politics and a kind of resurgent uh democracy i mean the kind of you know like when i see the kids coming to university now are the ones who are marching on the street uh, because of greta thunberg and there's really a different uh, kind of view of young people that i see now even than what i would have seen five years ago mm. certainly 10 years ago so i think there is also a generational shift going on woke capitalism's kind of intertwined in that um uh, but i think there's also some hope in the in the next generation because frankly my generation has either screwed things up or just spectated as they've gone downhill generation x generation n as you say <laughs> uh, i want to get to wokeness in a second but before we leave the capitalism component of, of woke capitalism when you say that you would like to see a sort of a new public imagination what does that look like well i think the problem the issue is that we don't know what it looks like but i think I think if you think of democracy, which is kind of the kind of the basis on which we work, and if you think of you know the the French revolutionary slogan of freedom or liberty, equality, and they said fraternity, but we can replace that with solidarity because of the sexist language of the time. So much these days of democracy is all just about freedom and personal freedom. I should be able to do what I want, particularly if you look in the U.S much less about what the responsibilities that that brings, much less about democracy as a s system of equality and what that means in terms of in terms of community, and certainly much less in terms of solidarity. So we have this heightened individual individualism that's come, you know, um, as part of the package with, with neoliberalism. So I think a turning back to kind of collective values um, and, and realising that we're in this together. And in a country like Australia, you know, a, a wealthy, prosperous country, why isn't there more sharing of that? prosperity? Why is it increasingly going in the hands of, uh, well, not increasingly, why is for some time has it been moving to the, to the hands of the few? Meanwhile, if you're in a major capital city now and you're a young person leaving school or getting a trade or leaving university, the idea of home ownership is a pipe dream unless you've got daddy's money. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's a whole other, a whole other, you know, can of worms to to open up. Mm. Um, so if we are going to become woke to woke capitalism, as you as you call it, um, let's just trace back uh, wokeness. And I'd love to get your thoughts about whether the threat of wokeness is overblown or underblown. Um, is Colin Kaepernick a, a place to to start? Well, I mean that would be starting in the middle, but yeah, it's a good place to. Well, talk let's from. start at the beginning then. 
Well, the the origin of the term woke um, came from African-American vernacular. It's hard exactly to place when, but it was definitely around in the 1960s. And, and there was a really interesting speech by um, Martin Luther King Jr., um, where he was talking about civil rights and the civil rights revolution. And he actually uh, talked about, do you remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? Hmm. But, rem- but repeat it. I will. So Rip Van Winkle is hanging around in the 1700s in the, in the United States, and he decides to go for a long sleep. And before going, he goes to a tavern. And on the wall, he sees a, a, tav, a picture of the King of England. Anyway, so he wanders up the hill, and he falls asleep for 20 years. He comes back down, goes to the same tavern, and now there is a picture of George Washington. He slept through the revolution and he's confused and he doesn't know what's going on and he's all kind of, you know, in a, in a big kind of kerfuffle and doesn't understand the world. And what um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. suggests is that don't sleep through the civil rights revolution, you know, or to put it another way, be awake to what's going on. And this notion of being awake, he didn't use the term woke, but others did at the time. Is a is a term about being conscious and aware of the political and social forces and changes going on around you, and that meaning kind of you know had a bit of an undercurrent, never really became mainstream. Um, but what happened then with the Black Lives Movement in the early in the early twenty tens? It came back, and uh, this is the first um, uh, social, one of the first social movements where social media was a big part of it, and the hashtag Stay Woke became part of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, and this was the original notion of woke, not as a criticism, not as a pejorative, like the, the you know, people who get all crazy about woke capitalism, but actually something that's really good, something that, that's about being aware and being able to act on, on what you're doing. And in a sense, Colin Kaepernick um, uh, was supporting uh, the Black Lives Matter movement initially by sitting at the national anthem and then going down on one knee as, again, as a way of raising awareness, of uh, trying to get people to get awake to what was going on, particularly in terms of racial violence and, and inequality in the U.S. So that's where the, 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 the term comes from. We can get onto it, but it became pretty mutated after that. Mm, okay, yes, let's, let's explore that mutation. So, uh, so you have people like uh, Colin Kaepernick um, uh, in this sense. And just by the way, what's interesting, you know, he got in a lot of trouble because he was kneeling and people thought this yeah. was terrible. And, you know, Donald Trump started doing his usual mouthing off about it. Um, but the notion of kneeling, by the way, was actually uh, a custom that soldiers used to do. So if if one of your your comrades in arms died in the battlefield, you would kneel next to them and say a prayer in a kind of out of out of respect and acknowledgement that they gave their life for the cause. So this is the the actual symbolism that was uh, um, that was being used here. So it was a symbolism of kneeling for 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 African Americans who had been killed in police violence and 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 uh, and 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 through other things as well, but mainly in relation to the police. And so this whole thing then woke became a really important uh, rallying cry for Black Lives Matter. But but with the social media, it also then kind of seeped into more general culture. And you found that 
people then started using the terms woke more generally to mean political awareness, not just about racial injustice and violence, but about any kind of issues. Um, and, and so this, this was the case. But then language kind of works strangely, right? It kept moving along. So it then, as white people started to be called woke um, and using the term woke, it started to take on a new meaning of meaning insincere kind of superficial political uh, or uh, positions or ideological positions that people were just adopting because they were kind of trendy or, or, or fashionable in some way. So it started coming to mean insincere uh, belief in progressive polo- political issues that didn't really have any depth. So that became more general, and then you know all these. You know, if you were if if you wanted to be disparaged for these kind of views, people would call you a member of the wokeerati. Woke tad is another one uh, that was around uh, for a while. So the meaning completely shifted from meaning being aware and sensitive to the real issues affecting you to being completely superficial in adopting kind of trendy progressive politics because you know you know um uh, they they you thought they were cool and there was even the notion of woke fishing where men would adopt these woke positions through social mm. media in order to try and make sexual conquests with yeah. with women um so it really kind of mutated and then when these corporations started doing this, you know, taking these kind of positions, which, as I said, was during the the Trump years, it got attached to them as well. And it's pretty much stuck with that, um, uh, you know, over the last whatever it is, four or five years. That's a, a good description. I'm, I'm interested that you use the word insincere as part of uh, the definition of, of woke. Is, is insincerity... Uh a fundamental component of the way we use wokeness now because I, I'm not sure that's how I use it. I think I would, I think I would associate wokeness with censoriousness, uh, hyperbole, uh, lack of perspective, mm. uh, lack of generosity towards another person's position, uh, cherry picking, taking out of context, straw manning, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but not necessarily insincerity. Uh, all of that couldn't come from a, in fact, I think some of the most dangerously woke people are deeply sincere about their stupid beliefs. Mm. But there, yeah. So yeah, I mean, insincerity was part of the criticisms that came, whether that can be broader. Yeah, I think you're right there. But I mean, not just insincerity. I mean, maybe we could kind of broaden that out then to say kind of lack of depth. Yes, superficiality, um, yeah, definitely. It yes, might, might be glibness. more what I was trying to get right, at with that. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You can be sincere in in thinking that you're fighting a good fight when in fact you're really just playing with words. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so you know, there are a couple of components that are worth picking your brain about that people think are bad about this trend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, one might be what's broadly called cancel culture. Another might be uh, what I have uh, have what I call outrage archaeology, where people go digging. <laughs> I'm trying to get it spread. I'm trying okay. to get it into I'll common parlance. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know the phenomenon where all of a sudden, you know, 11 years ago, someone tweeted uh, some gay joke that uh, at the time was sort of considered edgy and funny and is now considered uh, out of bounds mm. and because they didn't haven't deleted it in the years since. They yep. get uninvited from the Academy Awards or to host the Academy Awards or something, mm. as, was, uh, as was the case. Um, uh, 
I guess both stem from a lack of generosity towards each other and an almost religious fixation on finding heretics and and burning witches Mm. and identifying, you know, transgressors. Um, Are these concerns overblown? Are they interrelated? How do you think about them? I think there's some reasonable concerns. I mean, so Harvey Weinstein, let's look at him, someone who was clearly massively cancelled and was a reprehensible human being. Was he cancelled, though? Well, I mean, he was a a vicious and violent rapist who who had his comeuppance. Yeah. So I don't think many people accuse his victims of being too woke or like that being a a woke campaign, do they? Does he have many? Well, I think the, the the Me Too movement, which was spawned in response to, to Weinstein initially and then broadened out more generally, um, uh, and how that then relates to debates around uh, toxic masculinity, is by some people considered woke. But my question is, does that mean you won't watch his films? Does that mean you... Right. Well, that's another good question that's raised by all this, isn't it? Separating mm. the artist from the art yeah. or the business person from the from their products. I mean, I I think he's he's a problematic example because even the most even the most anti-woke conservative does not think that men should go around violently raping yeah. women, right? Yeah. I think a, you know a a, a better Example might be Louis C.K., mm. not guilty of a crime, but clearly guilty of being a creep. Yeah. Um, Aziz Ansari, I don't know if you remember that uh, scenario where he was a comic who had a TV show. He basically had just a bad date who his, uh, and she then wrote about it and uh, said that she had felt uncomfortable in his awkwardness, but he hadn't, you know, expected to do anything. And he was nominated for an Emmy Award and nobody applauded. These are not the worst things in the world. You know, he can still work, but it's deeply embarrassing and and you're shamed and kind of not invited to fancy parties and maybe your career takes a hit because Mm. of of things like that. Um, Those would be the borderline cases where uh, where people would wonder... You know, nobody wants to live in a in a world in which women are in which it's regarded as being okay for a woman's male boss to slap her on the ass and say, "How you doing?" To its nice dress. Mm. But similarly, few people want to live in a world in which it's impossible to uh, be clumsy on a date yeah. without having your life ruined. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, these are border cases. I mean, the cancel cancel culture is part of in, in these media personalities. Is about kind of popularity, which has always kind of been fickle in any case. But, you know, I remember when I was a kid, we used to watch the Benny Hill show and before that uh, <laughs> and thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Like, there's no way that's going to air now. I mean, yeah. are you going to cancel me because my 12-year-old self thought Benny Hill was funny? Well, if the outrage archaeologists hear this, they'll try. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the funny thing is that, of course, you know, both sides do this. And I was being interviewed by a, an, an Australian conservative, Rowan Dean, uh, for a, a special that he's doing about cancel culture and free speech. And, you know, I made the point, much to his chagrin, that you know, people say, "Oh, you can't, you couldn't do Benny Hill these days, or you couldn't do Monty Python these days." You, you know, Monty Python. You know, the wokesters would all get out and they'd want to cancel it. <laughs> I made the point to him when they released Life of Brian. 
they almost were cancelled yeah. and the and the film almost was banned and it wasn't the left that was doing it it was religious conservatives who were yeah. doing it and this was right after McCarthyism when the when the right wing had gone on an absolute witch burning witch hunting you know witch burning rampage against left wing people in Hollywood so you know there is a long history of cancel culture on the right Mm. And I think I think the life of Brian was banned in some Catholic countries. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Ireland. I think. Don't quote me on that. Even though I just yeah. said it in radio. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, so, what's your relationship then to artist versus versus the the work? Do you still watch Woody Allen films? Um, I, I haven't had an opportunity because no one's airing them anymore. <laughs> but I still remember watching Woody Allen films, and you know, uh, he's he's a he's a very funny guy. I mean, it's a hard one to draw the line. I mean, you know, would you listen to Gary Glitter's back catalogue? You probably wouldn't because it's so crap. But... I'm, not, I'm not even sure I've heard Gary Glitter. Oh, but... okay, he was a kind of a glam rock I mean, star I've heard of, of the seventies. I wouldn't know a song. Who, uh, then you obviously don't remember, do you want to be in my gang? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're very you're young. You're showing your Gen N age here. Wow. But he he later got found out for um, child sex tourism in Southeast Asia, wow. and it was a big kind of big kind of thing. Although if you lift the rock on rock stars uh, and see the the centipedes yeah. crawling out and the slugs under there, that you wouldn't there wouldn't be many people you could listen to in good conscience. No, not not at all, or even. You know, listen to the lyrics of the Rolling Stones singing Brown Sugar. I mean, right. why has that never been cancelled? Yeah. It's, about, it's about slave rape in, in uh, early America. Or the um, Beatles. She was just 17. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. And so all of these things. So, I mean, it kind of depends on what gets beat up and what comes to uh, popular attention that kind of does this cancelling. So, I mean, would I worry about it too much? I mean, to be honest, in my daily life, it doesn't really come up a whole lot. So, and you I mean, don't find that your students are um, in this ideology? A lot of the students I, I speak to these days are, but a lot of them are also a lot smarter than that and, and have a broader view on uh, on what's going on um, in terms of politically as well. And I think but there's also a shift. I mean, you talked before about kind of, you know, different pronouns and, 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 and uh, sexual identity. I mean, in many ways, you've just got a group of younger people now who have a broader perspective on what sexuality is and what it can be that, that certainly wasn't around when, when I was... Uh, when I was young, and even until more more recently, speak to someone 30 now, and they'll still tell you that no one would come out as gay in high school because they were afraid of being bullied. But, you know, 10 years later, that's not the case at all. That seems to be a good thing people can express themselves. And, and if people, you know, some people don't like it, they might want to look at themselves and to say, why are you so worried about, you know, other people's genitals. Why are you so worried about what they do in bed? Why are you so worried about 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 you know what they call themselves? It's kind of none of your business. Well, I mean, it sounds to me like you you uh, exist in uh, in a very desirable position, which is a position called the real world, uh, and many of us don't. Many of us live in social media s- spheres where. The, the debate is not between people who want uh, sexual or gender liberation and those who are deeply concerned about what they do in the privacy of their own bedrooms. Mm. The debate is between people who would like to be able to uh, have as capacious as possible a concept of the public conversation and raise uh, devil's, devil's 
advocate positions about whether or not gender is related to biology, for example, yeah. without uh, being hounded as bigots on on social media. So I, I think it's less about uh, why can't we all just get along with each other's groovy uh, genders and sexualities. Mm. And the way that the culture war, I think, is cleaving is it's more about are we even allowed to question this new orthodoxy that has somehow been handed down by the woke about these sort of hot-button issues without being pilloried and and regarded as being bigots? Sure, but, you know, if I'm some kind of, you know, white middle-class guy living in Warunga, living my life and, you know, going to the RSL for a schnitty every now and then, never ever meeting anybody who is not clearly identifying as being a man or a, or a woman why should i have an opinion about this it's got nothing well, to do with maybe my life. You're, i don't know maybe your children are being taught in public schools that uh, there's uh, there's no difference between men and women and that biological sex is a fiction yeah okay then it could be in terms of in terms of children um but i don't think people are being taught that in schools not in new south wales no yes no but but and i think when these kind of issues do come up in schools it's presented in terms of you know different ways that different people see things and different ways that 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 people um can behave and is it better to accept uh, accept this difference in in sexualities or do you want you know repressed teenagers committing suicide because they can't express themselves mm. um uh, so i mean this idea that schools are suddenly going to push you know educated school teachers are going to be pushing some singular ideology on on people on students and they're just going to swallow it whole i often find this with universities too i mean people will say oh we can't have this in universities because you know you'll just be indoctrinating the students man we can't get the students to hand their assignments in no time <laughs> indoctrinating them that's impossible but we can expose them to a greater variety of views so that they can form their own opinions. Well, that's the key. I think yeah. that's what people who are opposed to, to the alleged indoctrination are bothered by, the, yeah. the idea that there might not be a, a wide range of views, that there mm. might be young people who are only being exposed to a worldview that has a, 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 some basic tenets that are required to be unquestioned, yeah. tenets such as the Western world is founded on a foundation of racism, that we are irredeemably racist, that there are there are sort of fundamental differences between the races that are insurmountable and mm. therefore that white privilege has to be front and centre of every conversation and every policy that we, yeah. that we think about. Um, that you know, gender diversity is 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 cr is crucial as a way of overcoming the wrongs of the past, and that therefore any assertion that uh, males might be biologically more inclined to be this way and women might be more inclined to be that way is just a pernicious lie that's foisted upon people by a, a by by the white privileged elite. So you know, th these could be certain tenets that you grow up believing as fundamentally as uh, you know that the that the earth is round. And uh, I think people just want young people to be exposed to a whole range of different ideas, some of which dispute those premises. Yeah, but I, I think the people who have the single view are more the people who've grown up with the view that, you know, men are men, women are women, who've grown up with the view that there's a particular way, that, that class doesn't matter, we all live in a great meritocracy, that Australia's a, a free country and had nothing to do with, you know, stolen land. 
And I think it's those people who are having their certainties questioned by a broader point of view who are the ones who've got the problem. Because I don't see this singular view around white supremacy or, or sex or gender or whatever being portrayed in this way. I think there's mm. loads of different ways uh, we hear, ab- hear about this. Where in the past, you would have had that singular indoctrination and it would have been an indoctrination towards the point of view that these critics are now becoming all anxious um, that their certainties have been thrown on uh, on a bonfire and that there are things can be questioned. So I think there's a kind of projection that this, this, this woke position is being pursued as a singular ideology that no one can contest. And it's not. It's the right. old singular ideology which finally is being questioned. To my mind, that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and hopefully we'll find an equilibrium. And I, I mean, I, to some extent, too, you're, you're making me much happier about uh, because you're, you actually work with, uh, with students and you're actually on, at the coalface of reality rather than tweeting <laughs> at people. But, I, um, I tweet too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Follow Carl on Twitter, everybody. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think that on the whole, Australia is a more sane and measured place than the United States. And so rather than swinging wildly between... You you know, I, I, my perception of the United States at the moment is that people are hunkered down into their into their warring trenches, and uh, yeah. you know, each side wants its conception of the world to be holistic, to be you know all encompassing, and isn't and feels like to to yield anything to the other side yeah. would be you know to embolden the the other side and to concede defeat to all things that are that are good. You know, to the conservatives, yeah. it's like you know. Common, common sense and family values and the structure of society and the hierarchies that have served us well for hundreds of years mm. and to the other side, it's, it's justice and fairness and equity. It is, and I think there is more polarisation in the US, certainly through the media. I mean, I go to the US from time to time, as there a few months ago, and you don't pick it up so much when you speak to everyday people as you do when you watch Fox News, sure. um, which I did watch when I was over there, by the way. It was... Mm kind of scary but i'll tell you a story you know um earlier this year in about january i received a an email from some think tank in florida saying we've read your book woke capitalism carl would you like to come for an all expenses paid trip um to speak at our conference now, my book's called Woke Capitalism, and it's about how, how uh, woke capitalism is destroying democracy. Now, they clearly got the wrong view, right? <laughs> they clearly got the wrong view and right. thought that I was some kind You're of right-wing nutjob type person yeah. or neoconservative, yeah. more politely. Um, because the person headlining this conference was going to be Jordan Peterson, who ah, you may have yes. heard of. And so they just picked up on the title of my book and assumed that I was there and invited me. So I looked through the nature of this group and looked through the the nature of this conference and realized that had I attended and spoken my mind, I I may not leave alive. So I declined the offer. I don't think I would have changed anyone's mind. And I certainly wasn't prepared to take the risk to my personal safety of attempting (laughs) to do so on that platform. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's just an example of how you get this polarization and people will just pick up on things. And even the argue with woke, it's kind of like you've got to be for or against it. There's no, there's no other kind of possibilities that like, like my view, which is in a sense, I kind of both, uh, I see myself as progressive, but I'm not in favor of woke capitalism. You've got to, it's, you know, this for and against. I mean, so it's well documented. Social mm. media exacerbates this. Or having said that, I'm not 
always sure how much it does because they tell me that social media, Twitter, for example, is going to send me the, the tweets that agree with my political ideology. So I ask you, why did they send me so much nonsense about the bloody Platinum Jubilee? <laughs> Completely <laughs> against my personal view. You're but following I was, the wrong people, I was Carl. bombarded by tweets about uh, it's not just about that this. It's not just that it sends you things that reinforce uh, what you agree with, but that it sends you things that, uh, that also uh, caricature the ideas that you don't agree with. I mean, anything that will get you engaged, right? So anything that stirs the emotions, anything okay, that well, prompts you to like or yeah. reshare or comment... The, uh, the Daily Mail articles I received certainly <laughs> stirred my emotions. <laughs> yes, did, did you? My Republican feelings. Did, if you if you retweet it saying this is a load of horse shit, then that's a win for for Twitter. Okay, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do recall when I was at UTS, and full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a visiting fellow at your institution as well, thanks mm. to Professor Alan Davison. Yeah, um, I know Alan well. Uh, who who is trying to to fight. Uh, what he regards, I mean, you know, it may be different in the business department, but there is a general sense that uh, that that John Haidt in the States has sort of launched this campaign against, of which Alan is a part, um, that there's too much homogeneity in the thinking of social studies departments and that mm. there's, uh, there's too much um, of a chilling effect on alternative points of view, especially conservative ones uh, in, in those fields. And when I sort of just think back to my experience at, at the University of Technology, Sydney, when I was there, I mean, I do remember that the shibboleths were different, but they did exist. Um, I actually got out of UTS and did my most of my social studies uh, subjects at Sydney University, which mm. is the old uh, sort of Ivy League sandstone uh, university, which teaches the traditional, uh, you know, philosophy and mm. history and that sort of stuff. Uh, because after a semester of doing the kind of you know, alternative deconstructionist, uh, post-structuralist uh, social studies at UTS. Mm. Um, I found that they would, you know, we did a, well, there was a subject called Making Australia, which was a reconstruction of Australian history through the eyes of marginalised groups, Indigenous people, women and so on, and mm. migrants. Now, I didn't know my university level conventional Australian history yet. So you're picking apart and deconstructing something that you haven't even set up the foundations of. Mm. And like we'd learn 20th century French philosophy that's all about deconstructing the ideas of the classical philosophers. And I didn't know the classical philosophers yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah. And like cultural relativism sort of seeped through everything. I remember doing a, a, um, a, taking a class about Asian politics. I was very interested at the time. This was in the early 2000s about Australia's role in the region and whether mm. we could straddle sort of Western civilization and Asian cultures. And my tutor, my lecturer, made the case that Tiananmen Square looked like a bad thing from our perspective because we are raised with certain biases towards human rights. But if you if you understand things from a Chinese Confucian perspective, then Tiananmen Square becomes a lot more understandable and justifiable. And I remember saying in class, I'm sure that would come as a great consolation to the people as they were being steamrolled by tanks, mm. uh, you know, the recognition that actually their human rights are just a, a construct of Western colonialists. Um, I didn't do very well in that class, as you might imagine. <laughs> but it does lead me to believe that there are, you know, assumptions that are that are imposed on, on young people and not everyone had the intellectual fortitude and pig-headedness that I did. So probably quite a lot of people swallowed it and emerged with cultural relativism as a worldview. 
it's uh, yeah, it, it, it is possible in that case. And I presume this was the heady days of the postmodern nineties, or, or yeah, this was the early two thousands. So oh, okay. it was just it was still it was still there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that that. But the interesting thing, I mean, these things do pass, and I, you know, I mean, in a sense, I think. I mean, as an educator, I'd say that's kind of bad curriculum development that you you suffered from as much as anything else, and maybe some over enthusiastic lecturers. I mean, yeah, it, it's yeah. hard to say, and so that will happen. But I imagine was this completely uniform? Was there no opportunity? Was there no uh, alternatives in any part of the education? And does that no? Is that there weren't? There weren't. There were all there were 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 some lecturers who admired my audacity for pushing back, yeah. and some who thought I was completely out of line and just missing the point, and yeah. really was just a, a relic of uh, of a bygone era who didn't understand. Uh, you know, the correct way of thinking. Anyway, yeah. that, was, that was just my experience. All of the, I mean, I was doing also radio and television and film production, all of which was fantastic. So I don't mean to besmirch the institution. It, mm. There was terrific stuff going on there. That was just my personal experience in those classes. Um, let's just wrap things up about woke capitalism, Carl. There's a piece, um, Will Hutton, who's a, a columnist in The Observer in the UK, uh, has a, had a piece recently entitled, Woke Capitalism is the New Villain of the Right, but it's also the Only Way Forward. Mm. So this is one pushback that I'm sure you hear quite a lot. It's, you know, it may be the the worst system apart from all the others. It's, you know, it's the only way to get things done in a capitalist society is for corporations to take some responsibility for their social impact. In a sense, yeah, you know, I kind of I kind of get that. But I think then I mean, are corporations taking responsibility or are they just realizing they don't really have any alternatives after <laughs> decades of climate change denialism, you know, so you know that it be, it becomes so hard that you'd really have to argue that black is white now to say that climate change isn't a real thing. So they pretty much waited and, until the very end. But I think that the dangerous thing is this kind of pragmatism and I know the article you're talking about this kind of pragmatism says, I'm going to support you so long as you agree with me. Right? Um, I will support what you say so long as you agree with me. The same problem that you're saying your lecturers had when you were at, at uni. And that then becomes a problem because as soon as you disagree, I stop supporting you. So we get to the, the ideal position is if all I want to do is have my will imposed on other people, I'm just a wannabe dictator. Now, I'm never going to be a dictator because I don't have a whole lot of power. But you'll finally find someone who does have a whole lot of power, Donald Trump, for example, um, who is quite happy to try and impose their singular will on people irrespective of what's going on. And I think if we believe in democracy, not just as a political system, but as a way of life, it is about tolerance for difference, belief in community, accepting other people from who they are. Not about me having fixed views about about you or anyone else, or whether it be about how you should be behaving or how you should what pronouns you should use or how you should identify sexually. And that I want my will imposed on you. We dangerously move towards a society that admires dictators. And when Elon Musk becomes king of the world, we'll find out what that's really like. Yes, but we'll all be living on Mars, so it'll be great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the book is uh, Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Uh, Carl Rhodes, thanks so much for being here. Entirely my pleasure.
Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.